Thanks for tuning in to the Seattle Moodcast. I'm Tamara Libicki. In today's episode, I interview Limud Seattle 2019 and 2020 presenter Marianne Tatum. Marianne discusses her philosophy of teaching Yiddish as learning the rules by using the language and describes how the learning process is one of discovery and joy. And I think once they start looking into the language, they find that there's this rich trove of cultural artifacts. So often when people come on, I will ask them about their Jewish journey because that's the motto of Limud. We take you one step further on your Jewish journey. But I wanted to ask you about your Yiddish journey. Uh, My Yiddish journey? Well, I call this my origins story in Yiddish. My partner, Harvey Nabolsky, is a native Yiddish speaker. So from time to time, I would hear him speaking Yiddish with people in the community. I was kind of curious, but not really motivated to start learning it myself. Until one year, we went to visit his aunt in Belgium, who does not speak any English. So I spent the whole week listening to them speak Yiddish together and feeling very upset that I couldn't speak with her because she's very dear. So upon my return to Seattle, I started studying Yiddish and it kind of snowballed. I got totally fascinated by the language, kept studying it, and now I'm teaching it. And now every year that we go back and visit the same aunt, now I can speak with her in Yiddish. So it's pretty wonderful. You also told me that you're currently a Yiddish pedagogy fellow at the Yiddish Book Center. Could you tell me a little bit about that training that you're doing? Sure. It's a little bit more complicated than that. I was a Yiddish pedagogy fellow in 2018-2019, so a new cohort has begun that I'm not part of. But for that year, I was one of 15 fellows worldwide that took the new textbook that's still in production and field tested it in my classroom and provided feedback to them about it. That was the pedagogy fellowship. And now, beginning in January, I'll be a field fellow, which means I get to go back to the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst and be trained to conduct oral history interviews in Yiddish and about Yiddish, because often people can't conduct a whole interview in Yiddish because they don't remember enough from childhood or what have you. So there's a lot of questions about was Yiddish spoken in your home? Did you take classes as a child? Just really capturing people's memories about Yiddish. Yeah, so I looked at the Yiddish Book Center website and I saw they have a few sample videos. But I was wondering, is there any overarching theme or goal behind this project? in terms of finding out where Yiddish was culturally in the past, where it is now. Did they give you any of those broader philosophical guidelines when you enter training or apply to the training? That's a great question. I haven't gone to this training yet, so I won't say for sure, but I know that many of the interviews cover the same kinds of questions. So In addition to asking about people's experience with Yiddish growing up, they ask about how do you see the current state of Yiddish? What hope do you have that Yiddish will survive? Do you still speak Yiddish? That kind of thing. It's really an attempt to capture the memories of people that grew up in a time when many people spoke Yiddish, when it was just the common language. 
and to see how things have changed from their perspective and see what kind of hope there is for Yiddish study in the future. And do you know what their purpose is of accumulating a whole lot of videos? I read they have over a thousand or something. Are they opening it up to study? Is the goal to get more people immersed in the culture of Yiddish? Do they have any stated goals? I'm not sure if you were to ask for a list of goals. I'm not sure what the official stance would be, but I could guess that it's to provide material for researchers, for teachers. They tend to chop up the long interviews into here's three minutes where somebody talks about growing up in this particular town, or here's five minutes where somebody talks about an interesting song that they learned from their grandparents. And those get subtitled in English. So you can then go and search on, oh, well, my grandmother came from Belarus. Let's see what other people grew up in Belarus. What can they tell me about that place that I never got a chance to ask my grandmother about, that kind of thing. They also have many interviews with people who are the, the children or grandchildren of famous Yiddish writers, poets, journalists. There's that attempt to find out what that family was like so that scholars working on that particular author would know something about them that maybe they couldn't find somewhere else, some kind of firsthand experience. And they also have interviews with younger Yiddishists who have come to the language as maybe as adults or as late teens going to some of these summer programs and find out about their role in Yiddish. So I guess the overarching goal is to preserve Yiddish and however you interpret that. So let's go back to the new textbook that you are trained on as a Yiddish pedagogy fellow. I'm going to ask you to pronounce it because I'm not sure I'll do it right. And then maybe you can tell me a little bit more about it. Sure. The new textbook from the Yiddish Book Center is called In Anum, which means as one or united together or something like that. And it's a radically different approach for teaching Yiddish. I think that the pedagogical approach is more common in other languages, but Yiddish, because so few people have taught it over the past decades, people have relied on just one or two core textbooks and not really taken it to a new level of educational pedagogy. The approach is called the communicative approach, and the idea is that you're constantly speaking with the students and giving them sample dialogues that they can use. You're treating Yiddish as a living language. You're talking about classroom objects, activities that characters might engage in. You're not treating Yiddish as a fossilized language of people that died in the Shoah. You have characters in the book that get to know each other. They talk about what they're doing for the weekend, and you're introducing grammatical concepts along the way, but you're not giving them, okay, here's how you conjugate a verb. Now go conjugate 50 verbs. It's not like that. You're working with the language, so you kind of learn the rules by using the language. So you brought up the idea that some people viewed Yiddish as a language that died in the Holocaust, um, which I think is very interesting because I know a large percentage of American Jews were here before the Holocaust occurred, and they were using Yiddish in newspapers and radio. So have you heard or delved into where that perception came from, that Yiddish was a dead language? Yeah, you don't really have to delve into it, because I get told that all the time. Like, oh, you're teaching Yiddish? Why are you teaching Yiddish? It's a dead language. Nobody uses it anymore. 
And I hear a lot about people who's maybe their parents spoke Yiddish or their grandparents, but they spoke it when they didn't want the children to know what they were saying. Yes, you did have Yiddish newspapers, particularly labor movement focused socialist newspapers. You also had Yiddish radio shows, but the people who came to the U.S. very much wanted their children to assimilate into American culture, which meant leaving the language behind. So could you tell me a little bit about the string of continuity that Yiddish has taken? You said that your partner is a native Yiddish speaker. That was his first language, and he's still speaking it. But in the American Jewish culture in general, you said that a lot of people wanted to not teach their children Yiddish. How has Yiddish survived? How do you see Yiddish surviving? Through a lot of effort. My partner's situation is somewhat unique in that his parents continue to speak Yiddish with him throughout his life, and he was comfortable with that. His cousins who grew up with the same Yiddish-speaking family now as adults in later life, they remember some, but they don't speak it anymore. So I think it can take an effort on the part of the individual to really keep that language and realize that it's a, a pretty precious thing to be able to speak another language fluently and seek out opportunities to use it. As far as continuity, I haven't really thought about any, any grand statements on this. People that I see in my classes, there's a few that are just simply curious because they've heard about Yiddish and they want to explore it. And I think once they start looking into the language, they find that there's this rich trove of cultural artifacts like historical newspapers, greeting cards, any kind of publication you can think of in Yiddish that's really fun to look at, as well as songs and stories. Others come in and they just, they remember very little from their grandparents. They want to finally start exploring those family roots. On a sort of related note, because you just said there's a very wide variety of different people and different reasons for studying Yiddish, you said that the title of the textbook is In Anum, and you said the translation is something like United or As One. So why is that the title? I don't know why they chose the title. There's a song that they introduce in the first chapter called Lomir Allah in Anam, Let's All Together, and it's it's like a welcoming song. So it says, Lomir Allah in Anam in Anam, Yiddish Mechabum Podemzain, which Mechabum Podemzain, it's from the Hebrew, it's something about welcoming the face of something. So you're inviting Yiddish into the conversation, into your life. And then they have a verse that says, Lomir Allah in Anam, Studenten Mechabum Podemzain, let's welcome the students. And then they say, Lomir ala in enam, lehrers mekabel punam zain. Let's welcome the teachers. So um, I, I assume they picked the title as a way of trying to be welcoming and inclusive. And they really have made an effort with the characters in the book. They have one who's an anarchist barista in New York. They have some Hasidic people. They have secular Jews, they have non-Jews, they have a wide variety of people that are studying Yiddish as characters in this book, so they're trying to be as inclusive as possible. Have you met any non-Jewish people studying Yiddish? Yes, I have a student at my classes at Beth Shalom who has a PhD in German and was interested in Yiddish as kind of a dialect. 
So he's finding that it's useful to also know Hebrew because there's lots of Hebrew words in Yiddish, and of course it uses the same alphabet. But he's very comfortable speaking the language because he has this other native fluency. So it's it's an interesting mix to throw into the class. Somebody who knows very little about the religion, but who's very comfortable with the language already. I'm sure he's learning a lot because there's a lot of culture encoded in it. For sure. So you mentioned dialect. One thing that I read on the website about in Anum is that they try to use different dialects of Yiddish in the book and different spelling systems. Is that correct? Have you experienced that? Or maybe I misunderstood. Hmm. I hadn't read that. I know they've made an effort to use native speakers because there's a whole multimedia component. You can go to a website and listen to dialogues and watch videos from native speakers. Some of them will have different dialects because of where they grew up or where their family was from. They use a lot of historical resources also. So if you listen to a field recording of somebody singing a song and they're from a particular region of Poland, they're going to have a different dialect than somebody who learned Yiddish from books. So there's that effort. As far as different spellings, there is some non-standard orthography that you'll see depending on the region or the country in which something was published. So in Yiddish, when a word is imported from Hebrew, it keeps the Hebrew spelling. So Shabbat is spelled just as you have it in Hebrew. In Soviet orthography, because they were anti-religion, they would spell out the word phonetically using Mm. the Aleph base. So instead of Shabbat, spelled as in Hebrew, you would have it spelled out with the vowels as in Yiddish. Mm. So there's that distinction with orthography. So the the dialect would have to do with how it was pronounced rather than how it was spelled. So I'll have to go look at the website. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, because there are different dialects based on the region that it comes from, right? And does that take the form of different vocabulary words or are there grammatical differences as well in the dialects? Both. Okay. (laughs) So depending on the dialect, it can even affect the gender of the noun because Yiddish has gender for nouns and in a particular dialect, they don't have a neuter form. So those nouns end up being masculine or feminine. Whereas in standardized Yiddish, you have masculine, feminine, and neuter. Hmm. You'll also find some differences in how you form the past tense what helping verb you use to form the past tense. You'll find differences like instead of do for the familiar you, some dialects say d. So there's that switch. Yeah, so it's fascinating. Yeah, fascinating to delve into. So you're also a klezmer musician. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the state of klezmer music in Seattle. Klezmer music is thriving in Seattle. We have many local groups that play out often. I'm in the Klez Cats and Orchestra Farfala. We also have Brivola, Malka and the Boy Chicks, the Debacherants, Kessel Garden, Spielkiss. I'm sure others I'm forgetting. We've also had a lot of touring musicians come through, which is really special. Jake Schulman Mint came through, a fantastic klezmer violinist. We had Michael Winograd a few weeks ago, a clarinetist. 
last year, Sasha Loria and Craig Udelman held the first Seattle Yiddish Fest. So they came in and brought musicians and had Yiddish song. They're hoping to do it again in 2020 in February. And I think the local klezmer revival has been in large part due to many of us having the opportunity to go to other music camps and learn from master musicians and bring back the repertoire. So many of us had been to Klez Canada. Klez Camp was in New York before that. Now it's turned into Yiddish New York. And having the opportunity to go to really where there's just a hotbed of wonderful musicians and study with them and bring it back has really improved the music scene here. So how do you see the Klezmer revival in Seattle dovetailing with the Yiddish revival in Seattle? It dovetails because if you have any songs in your klezmer set, what language are you going to sing them in? Well, if they're Jewish songs, Yiddish is perfect. You could sing in Hebrew. There's less interest in that. There's many wonderful historical Yiddish songs that one could sing in a klezmer set to sort of mix it up. And there's also new songs being written in Yiddish. The local band Brivola sings a lot in Yiddish, and they've written some new material in Yiddish, which is really fun to hear. So you also lead a weekly Yiddish Torah study at Congregation Beth Shalom. You're doing it around the translation by the author Yehoash. So could you tell me a little bit about how you even heard about this? Because I had never heard of it. And then what made you decide to bring it to Beshalom and in a group setting? And why do you feel like his translation is unique? I don't actually remember how I heard about Yahuash, but we've picked up some of his translations at the Yiddish Book Center. He's translated the whole Tanakh into Yiddish. It was published in pieces and then collected after his death. The first time that I worked with Yehoash was when I was at a Yiddish intensive weekend with Sheva Zucker in New York in May. And for our Saturday Shabbat study, we had been working with Yiddish poets mostly and some grammar lessons, and she brought out the Yehoash, and we looked at it, and we read that week's Parsha in Yiddish from his translation. So that was the first time I worked with him directly. I just thought it would be an interesting way to reach people who really weren't committed to signing up for a year-long Yiddish class but were curious. So we started bringing just the triennial four pages a week of his translation and having Torah study after lunch on Shabbat at Beth Shalom. And it's been interesting to see who shows up. We have a couple of people who are pretty fluent and read very comfortably and can simultaneously translate. We also obviously have the Chumash with us so we can see, okay, what did the Hebrew say? How did they translate it into English? How's the Yiddish different? And then we have people that maybe they'll read one verse a week and stumble through it, but that's great because that's taken them one step farther on their Yiddish journey. The translation, it was meant for people to use in the home and to reach people that maybe didn't know Hebrew or couldn't make it to a regular Torah study at shul, and they spoke Yiddish at home, so of course you want to study the Torah in Yiddish. So the language that he used is very Peshat level. There is actually a version of the Yehoash stories for children, so you can even get easier than what we use. Yeah, it's interesting to see his word choices and, and learn some new words along the way. 
And you asked earlier about dialect. I had one more thing to say about that, about word choices. You're absolutely right that depending on the region, you'll get more borrowed words from other languages. So you might have more Slavic words. You might have more German words. So the Yehoas translation, I've noticed he uses a lot of Germanic words, which we call Deutschmarisch. What does that translate to, Deutschmarisch? Um, well, Deutsch is German, so right. Deutschmarisch, German-like. German-like, Or, or okay. German-derived words. Right, nice. So I've heard people say that anytime you translate something, it's actually a commentary. Um, do you see any themes with his translation, any philosophical bents that he brings into the translation? Well, ask me again in three years when we finish the whole Torah, because we're only doing one third of each parsha, so we're skipping around a little bit. I'm not noticing any philosophical themes. I think he's trying to make it as accessible as possible while being as faithful to the text as possible. Hmm. Which is interesting, is we have one rabbi who studies with us who said that she's very used to looking at the Hebrew and looking at level after level of meaning. So for her to go to the Yiddish and have it be this very basic level is kind of mind-blowing. So if I wanted to start studying Yiddish, what are my options here in Seattle? You have many options here in Seattle. Um, I'm not sure how many classes there are right now, but earlier this year we had 14 options because there were classes, not only my beginning and intermediate classes at Congregation Beth Shalom, but we have coming up four classes at Seattle Central College in the adult ed program. So those are 10-week classes. Winter quarter starts January 6th. And Wendy Marcus teaches classes at Temple Beth Am, beginning and intermediate, and also at Temple de Hirsch, and also at the Summit. Sasha Berenstein teaches classes. I believe a queer Yiddish study is starting up at Kadima in January, and they've also done some classes at Hillel. So there are many local options in addition to the Yiddish Torah study, which can be just drop in. There are also online resources at the Workers' Circle, formerly the Workmen's Circle. They just changed their name to Workers' Circle, circle.org, and you can take online classes basically at any level of Yiddish you want, and they have about three series a year, so there'll be one starting up in February from the comfort of your home. I noticed that you mentioned there's a class at the summit, which made me curious. Is that more open to the community, or are there actually people who live at the summit who are up in years going to these classes? My understanding is that it's people who live at the summit, but people can also drop in. Mm. And what I've heard from Wendy Marcus, who teaches it, is that they're teaching her because they bring stories and expressions that she's never heard of. And it just sounds like a really sweet gathering of people who spoke Yiddish much earlier in life and remember a lot. So they're trying to go back to a language of their youth. Yeah. That's great. And another one that I noticed you mentioned was the queer Yiddish at Kadima. So what is queer about it? So my understanding is that it will be a class that goes even further in inclusion. So the new textbook does have an option for a singular they. We have an exercise in the first day where I go around and ask people, what's your Yiddish pronoun? So you can be a he, a she, or a they, or any combination of those that you like. And the person who's teaching the queer Yiddish study, Sasha Berenstein, worked on a whole list of 
words around LGBTQIA+, in Yiddish, words for cisgender, transgender. If you have a parent that doesn't identify as being a mother or a father, what do you call them? It's a whole list of terms that the League of Yiddish published that's also available on Medium. And they know much more about this than I do linguistically and culturally. So my understanding is that it will be kind of a, a class of radical acceptance around queer issues and language. So with this rising interest in Yiddish, you told me that there have been more and more Yiddish community events. So could you give me a few examples of those and maybe give some details on them? Sure. So for many years, Harvey Nabolsky has led a Yiddish song circle at Folklife, Yiddish 101. He provides all the materials and transliteration. So just come and sing some Yiddish songs with us. That's been going on for a number of years. And this past year, as the culmination of my year-long beginners class at Beshalom, we decided it would be fun to hold a Yiddish third Seder, which is a tradition from socialist circles, the Arbiter Ring, the Workers Circle. So we put together our own Haggadah in Yiddish from historical sources that were available on the Yiddish Book Center digital collection. They have a, a wonderful website where you can download PDFs and print them out, copy and paste them into your own Haggadah. So we had a community Seder for about 25 people. We did the blessings in Hebrew because people would know them, and then we read them together in Yiddish and kind of looked at the translation. We sang songs like Chad Gadya, the counting song. There's Yiddish versions of all these songs. Mm -hmm. Most of the conversation was in English, but we had Yiddish Haggadah, and it brought up a lot of memories for people like, oh, that song. Oh, I remember we sang that when I was with my grandparents or something. And a number of people told us that when they were children, their grandparents made them learn the four questions in Yiddish. So we kind of did that together because so many people wanted to do it. We're hoping to do that again this year and in future years. And we also instituted, there's a tradition of staying up all night on Shavuos or Shavuot to do all night learning. And we had an hour of Yiddish song at around two in the morning, which people said really helped revitalize them so that they could continue staying up the rest of the night. Um, so you mentioned Chad Gadya. I noticed the Yiddish Book Center's symbol is what appears to be a goat. Do you know why their symbol is a goat? Yeah, because it's one of the symbols of Jewish culture, the klinatzigala, the little goat. That's really interesting. So there was a performance of the play Indecent recently in Seattle, and you told me that you helped the actors with their pronunciation of Yiddish? Yeah, they had a master recording from someone in New York of all the Yiddish dialogue, but they also wanted to have, from what I understand, it was a man who made the recording. So because they had so many female characters, they wanted a woman to record the female voices. So they actually met with Harvey and me and had us record all of the Yiddish dialogue for them to have another way to practice it. Mm -hmm. So they recorded us saying it very slowly and then saying it just as fast as you'd say it in conversation. So when you have your Yiddish accent, what region is that? Because you said that different regions have different pronunciations. So what region are you going for with your 
Yiddish pronunciation? Well, because I've learned my Yiddish largely from books, I speak Kalalsprach, which mm-hmm. is the standardized, YIVO-approved, sanitized Yiddish. I don't have much of a regional dialect. When I'm with this aunt every summer speaking Yiddish, she speaks a very pure Galicianer dialect. So I suspect that I start to speak that as well, but it's not something that I can replicate. And could you tell me a little bit about the play Indecent? Indecent has to do with the prohibition of a play by Sholem Ash because it contains the first onstage women kissing each other. But it goes beyond that to say, well, it's it was a political issue, it's anti-Semitic, and it's, it's complicated. So I know Yiddish as a language, because sometimes languages are kind of given characterizations, even though they contain all of human experience. It's characterized by its humor and also by its insults. So I was wondering, did you go into learning Yiddish with any preconceived notions of what it would be like as a language? And were you surprised by things? Do you sense a character in it? I think that's one of the common misconceptions about Yiddish, that, oh, it's a funny language because people have only ever heard it as a punchline. Mm. So you think about like a Borscht Belt comedian and they tell the joke in English and the the punchline's in Yiddish. Or there's very colorful insults like, may he grow like an onion with his head in the ground, that kind of thing. Um, But it's also, there's rich historical sources, there's beautiful poetry, painful poetry, poetry about the Holocaust, um, poetry about sweatshop workers in New York in the 20s, that kind of thing. I, I don't think I came into Yiddish with stereotypical notions about humor because I didn't grow up around Yiddish at all. So I just simply never encountered it. I probably thought it was more similar to German than it turned out to be. I I took German in college, and so I could understand some Yiddish at the beginning, but the further I got in, I realized, oh, actually, this is different, this is different, this is different, and oh, yeah, there's all these Hebrew words thrown in, so I have to know what those mean, too. So as my last question, if you were to sell someone on Yiddish, how would you do that? How would you encourage someone to come and learn Yiddish? Well, I think different people can be hooked by different things. Not everyone has a family connection to Yiddish, but there's a chance they do. Maybe their grandmother always called them something and they never knew what it was and they want to come find out. Or maybe you draw them in through some really cool Yiddish songs that, oh, wow, that was really fun to sing. Or maybe you do draw them in by showing them a list of insults. I think mostly uh, the way that I try to sell people is I am so enthusiastic about Yiddish that I think that comes through whenever I talk about it. If they can see a clip of students engaging and having fun and enjoying the language rather than, I think a lot of us had language classes where we were petrified to say anything because we didn't want to get it wrong, or I can read it but don't make me speak it. But if they see that the classroom can be a really fun, relaxed atmosphere where everyone is engaging with the language, everybody's smiling, gently correcting their mistakes, then that can bring them in. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.
The Seattle Limudcast was recorded at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamar Labicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Thanks again to our guest, Marianne Tatum. Check out Marianne's Yiddish classes at Seattle Central College and Congregation Beth Shalom.